Uh, you might want to flick through stuff. You might want to mark it. You might want to turn the corner of the page in your Bible and say, I want to come back to that like you save a chapter. That's a bit harder to do on technology, isn't it? But you can do that sort of stuff. And I just want to talk a little bit this morning about our world and, and a little bit about our place and our witness in the world and, um, and what that looks like. You know, the word unprecedented is, has been thrown around stacks in the last couple of years, hasn't it? So I'm not going to use that word. I just did, but I'm not going to again, all right? I'm just going to say that we live in weird times. We live in a strange uh, time and... It's not one that we, in so many contexts, whether that's, you know, now we're thinking about church and we're thinking about what it means for us as church to, to work through these times. But we've done it in schools. We've done it in workplaces. We've done it in families, not being able to see family or being able to see family. We've had to learn to, to do things differently in so many different ways, haven't we? And I think that for most humans, that there's something that happens in us. We don't do change real well and real easily. We ask a lot of questions. And so it's fair to say that this last season has been difficult for us, but for humanity for, for a while, hasn't it? It's been interesting. And we intrinsically know, we feel and we see that things are not that sense, that things aren't quite right in, our, in the world or in our world, that things are not yet right. Does anyone have this sense of, I feel like it's not quite there, you know, it's not right. And as Christians, we can feel this really acutely because there are other areas that really challenge us in this way, don't they? And of course, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about, not just, but of course COVID with all its add-on impacts, like I just said, with schools, with uh, right now with church, this is the first week we're experiencing uh, the impact that COVID has in a new way on our church gathering. We have for the last 17 weeks, we've had to gather differently, but now we're, we're having to adapt and, and experience it in a, another new way, which leaves us with that similar feeling that it's not right yet. But it's not just COVID, is it? There's so much more. You know, the last couple of weeks with COP26, you've seen the world up in arms. We can't seem to figure out how to look after our world and, and how to take responsibility for our world. Or we can't agree on what that might look like. And it's causing all sorts of vitriol and, and issues. And then, or even in our own nation. And then there's, there's wars that we're not even hearing about because we're so busy looking for COVID and all the other stuff. But there are people struggling and suffering out there. And suffering for the gospel in many wars and, and, um, and issues. There's oppression. There's, there's deception. There's people being deceived. There's abuse. There's and family breakup. Some of those things and some of that loneliness and some of those family issues brought on by the current season. Relationships that are breaking down and, and so much uncertainty. And so it's pretty, it's pretty logical to say that things are not right. There are so many problems and issues, and how do we solve them all? Does it, do you know, the men, because men are problem solvers, right? We want to solve things. How, how do we solve this all? Can we even? And we live in a state of tension. And that just on a side note, there's a, there's a saying that people say that's often, and it's true, a problem can be solved, but tension needs to be managed. A problem can be solved, but tension needs to be managed. Is, is that where we are? And we're not exempt as Christians, and I've just talked about that, haven't I? 
You know, we're asking what's going on and, and why. And sometimes as Christians, and, and I've, I've been in so many conversations in the last 18 months where I've, may, I've failed miserably trying to give advice and, and learn humbly in the end or trying to learn to listen. But there's so many conversations that we have and in each one, there's this thing about us that we kind of need to define the situation. We try to need to explain it away or, or kind of define, oh, this is, this is what, why it's happening or this is how it's happening. And, and I don't know if you, you read a whole lot, you know, but sometimes in Christian circles, there's this, this is why it's happening. And this is what is happening. Oh, it's a season, you know, and, and or someone saying, no, it's the end times. This is, this is definitely the end times. You know, we've seen it, we haven't seen this before. This is the end times. And then some say, and I've heard and I was reading some stuff, that all this stuff that's happening in the world, that it's actually the mark of the beast. And you know, these wicked people, these the you know, I don't know who they you know, they talk about the UN or or the US or the, the government here in Australia even or the nations and these wicked people and the governments, they, they are carrying the mark of the beast. And they, they talk about, Revelations tells us this, doesn't it? Revelations talks about it. That everything that's evil and wrong bears the name of the enemy. Bears his name in increasing measure. Is that it? Does that explain it? Maybe. But is this then where we surrender? Is this when where we say, oh, will I give up? You know, or is this where we sort of say, well, I can't beat them, so we'll join them? There is a lot that the enemy's doing. And, and things that we do need to be concerned about and we should be concerned about as followers of God. So do we have an answer? Do we have an answer for it? Well, I think... You know, we talk about the, 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 those that are evil that bear the enemy's name. There is another name. There is another name. Revelations also talks about another mark. It says those who know God are marked with the Lord. We've got that scripture there, Revelations 14 verse 1. Then I learnt Zion, and with him 144,000 who had had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. His name, this is Jesus, and his father's name. They were marked with his name. Those who know him, that's us. You know, the 144,000, don't let that confuse you. That is symbolic for those that know him. Those who got to that number, go ahead sometime. But that's us. That's the redeemed. That we bear his name. Jesus' name and we bear the Father's name. We carry his name. And that's going to make a huge difference, isn't it? That would be a yes. I've been talking to a camera for 17 months, so if you guys don't respond, I'm going back over there. <laughs> we carry his name. And that's going to make a huge difference. And remember that God's character is always connected to his name. So if we bear his name, we bear his character too. So as it carries his name, that's us. We reflect his character. We're in communion. Those that know him are in communion. They're connected with him. And that's the biblical word, no. That's just not, oh, God, you have heard of him. 
As they know him, they're intimately connected and they commune with him. That, you know, you've heard this before, that no word, biblical word no is like a husband and wife, a, an intimate relationship. So yes, these are difficult times, but precisely now I believe that God is looking for Christians that know him, that carry his name, you and I. And I think there are three things um, that mark those that know God, that mark those who carry his name. Yeah, those that carry his name, but they're not perfect in them. These three things, we're not perfect in them, but, but we live to grow in them. And I want to touch just briefly on the first two, then focus on the third, because I think that's the key. But the first one, those who know God, trust in him. Psalm 9, verse 10 says, those who know your name, that name that we bear, those who know your name trust in you. For you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. That's what the psalmist said. Those who know God trust in him. Those that know God and in relationship with him, and they discover increasingly that he is trustworthy. That increasingly when crisis comes, when difficulty comes, that, that he is trustworthy. That he has and never will forsake those that know him. Despite the challenges, they, true, they choose to trust God. That means less worry. That means less anxiety. That means less turmoil and stress. But a greater sense that they can trust God, that he is in control of everything. They know he has the world in his hands and they move forward in that trust. So those that know God, those that bear his name, trust him. That's the first one. The second one, those that know God, obey his commands. This one we find a little bit harder, don't we? 1 John 2 verse 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Think about that. You know that you know him. You know that you bear his name. If you keep his commands. How many of you kept all of his commands this week? More and more Christians these days are lax with God's word. And we need the word. In times like this, this is when the word needs to be our foundation. More and more Christians these days are lax with it. They allow the noises of the world, the liberal thought, individualism, independence... Uh, freedom, they let, let those noises drown out the voice of the word. Paul said in Timothy, the second one up there, said in Timothy 2, in 2 Timothy, he said, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say whatever their itching ears want to say. Whoever agrees with your opinion, whoever thinks the same as you, or whoever sees the same solution as, as you. Often the word is seen as hard and lacking grace in the modern world and even in some modern churches. And it's true that truth without grace is loveless. But grace without any truth is just as loveless. It's just as damaging. Are we still prepared to allow the Bible to be the highest authority in our lives? Are we still prepared to allow the word to influence and affect every aspect of our lives? 
you know, family, career, socially, um, the way that we behave, the way that we, we carry ourselves, the decisions we make, the way we use our resources, and I could to allow the word of the Lord. Are we prepared to obey the word of the Lord in all of that? And I think that's a tough call. I think those that know God, those that are marked with his name, obey his commands. Now, I don't always do that so well, and I'm guessing you could agree that you don't. This one is those that know God, that bear his name, trust him. Second one, those that know him, obey his commands. And the third one, and this is where I want to spend a little bit of time, those that know God have love. 1 John 4, verse 7 to 8. He says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves does not know God, because God is love. And he's not talking about love like, I really love my wife's cooking, or I really love when I do this. We're going to find out that there's a little bit more behind that kind of love. If you don't love like God loves, you don't know him. You don't bear his name. And here's where I want to spend a little more time. I see love amongst Christians these days lacking quite a bit. Increasingly, I see frustration, anger, annoyance, and more. I I see heated points of view, accusations. And when love is one of the foundational features or the foundation, isn't it? Even when we get involved in it ourselves. Because Jesus said, they'll know your Christians, followers, by your love. That was supposed to make a difference. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians, um, 1 Corinthians from the very end of 12. And it's all very well known. I know you think, oh, well, I've heard this before, but... We're going to read through it. Oh, that's a little bit hard to see. But we did that on purpose, so you have to use your own Bible as well. Okay, so we're going to read from 12b and through the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Let's have a look at that. And Paul says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have no love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Did you see that bit there? It says, you know, if if I have the gift of prophecy, so I am a hugely spiritually gifted person. But I don't have love, it's worthless. If I have heaps of knowledge, I've been to the RTC, I've, I've got the best theological education, I've got... If I'm a brilliant missionary, I'm a, you know, I am a um, make poverty history champion and I'm, I'm fixing everything and I'm fixing every person that's suffering in the world. I'm doing my best and I'm giving up all my money and giving everything... But I don't have love? Worthless. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. 
Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always... Like I said, a well-known scripture. You will have all heard it so many times before. What's going on before that? Why did he say that? Why did he say, and now I will show you the most excellent way? There were issues in the church and the society around them. There was a lack of honour. Not respecting each other's gifts. That sort of is obvious if you read chapter 12. Not, ex- not respecting each other's opinions. Not just not respecting each other. Forcing their own wills and ideas on each other. And what this was doing was it was affecting their kingdom witness. It was affecting the name of God going out. All was not well. There was tension. There was anger. Um, it was evident in a boiling pot of, of anger and, and turmoil and things not being defined and perhaps even a little bit like today. But it was entering the church as well, maybe a little bit like today, and amongst Christians. And Paul was not happy about it. You know, Corinthians uh, might not be Paul's most scathing letter. We, that's that's safe for Galatians. But it was definitely a hard letter, still a confronting letter. Now, now, Paul is not just saying this to them so that their church will work. Remember, and I think I've said this before, remember for Paul, there is always something bigger. There's always a bigger and wider kingdom picture. For Paul, it's always about what's happening in here is how God looks out there. And that was important for him. And so this seemingly odd chapter in the middle of 1 Corinthians, because it's a really odd chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, it's not just an answer to chapter 12, although there is some issues in chapter 12. It's not just an answer to that, that we must avoid division, care for each other, honour. There's different gifts, we can't have all of them. Uh, If one person suffers, another suffers. That's all in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is not just to, to answer that. It has a much greater purpose. It's there because it answers all that he said before that in 1 Corinthians. And if you read through 1 Corinthians, he talked about marriage. He's talked about divisions in society and in the church. He's talked about immorality. He's talked about legal issues, how we treat each other legally. He's talked about idols. He's talked about manipulative uh, traditions and opinions. He's talked about the way we deal with our rights. He's talked about... Communion, how we gather together communion. He's talked about spiritual gifts. That all came before chapter 13. But he also means it to help them understand what he's going to say next. Because then he will say, he talks about prophecy. He talks about tongues. He talks about worship practices, etc. And chapter 13, this weird chapter right in the middle, is his answer, his challenge to all is not right here. That's how I started the sermon. In our world, all is not right. This is his answer to them in that world, and this is his answer to us. And here's what he's saying. There are many things that we might differ on. We might see differently. We might even do differently. Many different skill sets, many different inclinations, different priority scales, different understandings of best practice and, and what we should and shouldn't do. Different interpretations of the word and and how we should see this situation or that situation or this part of the world. And all of those things have their place. All of them can be acknowledged. 
We can discuss them. We can even use them to help us to grow. We might even recognize differences. We might even agree to disagree, and that's okay. There are many ways to deal with them. Lots of ways to deal with division and all these things that Paul's talking about. And clearly, Corinthians didn't always deal with them well. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed to say this. But if we, as people who know God, are to bear his name, then he says, if that's the case, I am going to show you a still more excellent way. And that's love. And what's more, Paul's saying, it's everything that you are not right now, he's saying to the Corinthian church. I'm not saying that to us, but you know, let's, let's hear some of those things. He's saying, what's more, it's everything that you're not. <clears throat> and you don't even see it. You think you're loving. But each of the love is, and we'll go through them in love is patient, each of the love is statements are opposite to what he had observed in 1 Corinthians. If you read through, you can see every one of them is an answer to what he'd been seeing happening in the church. Reminds me of a scene in... Like someone loaned this lady a copy of Crocodile Dundee. But reminds me of Crocodile Dundee where he visits New York for the first time. Maybe it's the second movie, I don't know. He finds himself cornered by a gang of young thugs who assume that they have the upper hand. You know what happens then. He doesn't imme- and when he doesn't immediately produce his wallet... One young hoodlum pulls out a switchblade and threatens him. By the aggression, he pulls out a knife and he says, If we could quote scripture like that. (laughs) He pulls out a knife and says, That's not a knife. This is a knife. And the thugs run, don't they? When I read chapter, the first, uh, first Corinthians, or particularly 13, after all the other chapters, if you read through Corinthians, I did like a crocodile Dundee. His words seem to say, that's not love, this is love. You know, I don't think that the Corinthians deliberately chose to abandon love. I think they got so caught up in what was happening in their society, so swept along with the changes and what was happening and the things that they're having to deal with, and in their church, that they unconsciously abandoned true love. And when push comes to shove, and they needed to use that weapon, love, To handle the issues, they're a bit like Samson after Delilah cuts his hair. Samson thinks he still has the power and jumps to his feet, fully expecting to be able to beat the Philistines, not knowing that God's power has departed. That was a bit what the Corinthian church was in. Would Paul observe the same in our day? With our personal lives, or maybe in society, or in in our church... And with the world challenges. Because this, Christian love, is, is, it must transcend all other ways of responding to the things that we see around us, to the, to the way that we minister, to the way that we minister to each other and to the world around us. The way we think, the way that we deal, the way that we interact with each other. From whatever perspective that you're coming from. And boy, if the last... Two years, 18 months have shown me anything. There are a lot of perspectives on one thing. So whatever perspective you're coming from, love must transcend that. And let's face it, we're all pretty convinced our perspective is right, right? Mine is anyway, just so you know. So this love is the most excellent way to deal with this. And he's going to tell us what this love looks like, and he's going to be really practical. And I think in times like this, 
in times that we find ourselves in, with our family or in society or whatever stage of life you're in, I reckon it's a good exercise to apply this to our own lives and to our own context, our own current place. Does Paul's list apply to me or to you or to us as a church? Have a look. Love is patient. Have you been patient? Are you patient with people that think differently than you? Are you patient with the pace of change? Are you patient with, you know, when you get agitated and Sue will tell you, when I get a little bit, when there's a lot of stuff happening, I become less patient. That's why my kids moved to WA. They couldn't get any further away, you know. Because we do. Are you patient? Because love, those are beings that love is patient. We're patient with each other. We're not looking to score points. Love is kind. We're kind. We don't, you know, we don't become keyboard warriors. You know, the, the worst thing is when you see something on Facebook is to put the first response that comes up, right? Anyone ever done that? And thought, quick, edit. Where's that edit button? You know? Love is kind. It's, it's kind. It's always looking to, to, for the best and to choose the best. It doesn't envy it doesn't, um, it doesn't boast, it doesn't try to put itself and say, look, you know, I'm in a better position, I understand this better than you, and, and poor you for not having the same position as me, or poor you for not seeing the same as me, or being as good as me. It's not proud. You know, I know all this sort of stuff. I, I know better, I, I think that I'm right. It's not rude. Do I need to explain that? It's not rude. There's ways to talk to people and ways to draw people in. And God's love isn't rude. It doesn't repel. It actually draws people in to God's love. Not to you, to God. It's not self-seeking. It's not trying to feather its own nest. Love looks to, and there's so many other scriptures, isn't there? Love looks to prefer someone else. It looks to, to make it easy for someone else. It doesn't look to fulfill its own needs. It's not easily angered. Oh, I could learn a bit from that one. Anyone ever else struggle with that one? You can, you know. Not easily angered. You know, I the last 18 months... It, I can get angry about some things and I think it, I shouldn't because I can't control it. get angry with particular people and you know, I don't know if any of you are in any... I bet none of you ever have political conversations. <laughs> and anger is never part of that, right? No. But it's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Have you ever walked into a room and thought, I remember what you did to me or what you said. Or even if you haven't, you've, you know in your mind, there's this, you know, and that's a, really, that's a real struggle for us as human beings. I think sometimes, you know, people, our community will wound us. Our family will wound us. People will hurt us. The only one that won't hurt us is God. People will hurt us. And sometimes it doesn't get totally resolved. But love keeps no record of wrong. It doesn't do that. Love doesn't delight in evil. So all those times you felt like something should happen to one of our country's leaders, that was wrong. But rejoices with the truth. And the truth is that God is in control. The truth is that God knows and loves this world and he loves his people. It's, it's not just sort of telling a little bit of a, a white lie to, to get people moving. 
It always protects, always trusts. Trusts? What do we talk about? Those that know God, trust him, always trusts. God's got this. There's people at home. It's not the way that we want it to be. But love always trusts that God's got this. And it always hopes this is not the end. And we know it's not the end. We know that there's more coming. And we know that we're going to be with God forever with, and enjoying Jesus and the Father forever. We always hopes. Love always hopes and always perseveres. We push on. We move on. And why is it so important? Paul goes on, if we read a little bit further in there, in verse 8. Because love never fails. Love's the thing that endures after all of the arguments, after all of the other stuff, after all of the pressures. Love never fails. Where there's prophecies, um, where there's someone that's smarter than you, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, where somebody is more gifted than you, Oh, that won't matter anymore. Where there is knowledge, there is someone smarter than you. That's a lot of people in my life. It will pass. That won't matter anymore. The thing that will remain, the thing that we have that is going to last after COVID finishes, after all the arguments and all the wars and all the issues in the world, all the family struggles, all the broken relationships, the thing that will remain is love. The way that God called us to love. What the, the mark that we have. That's what survives all other forces, all other issues, all other actions. And he goes on, because, and we don't even see or know everything that God does. Verses 9 and 10. He says, because we know in part and we prophesy in part. So, but when, the perf- when perfection comes, when the perfect comes. Well, he already came on the cross. He already came and showed us what perfection looks like. That's love. That's what we need to follow. And perfection in, in a practical sense, and it will come one day. So, you know, and you could, you could contextualize this. All these discussions that we have about what's right, what's wrong, what way we should do things... We don't see the whole picture, not even in this. God does. And he's the one that calls us in the midst of that love. One day perfection will come. And in verse 3, things remain, faith, hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. We have faith. We have hope. We have those things. I have those things. You have those things. They're true. There is a drip right beside me. But I know for myself and I know for for many of us that that hope and and faith can fade a little in times like this as humans, can't it? It can kind of wane a little bit. But love is what we always have. Love remains. You know, as Christians, we need to be seen as different from the world in the way that we react. The way that we treat and engage with each other and with the world. We say that we know him. And we need to do that already now before the perfect comes. Jesus 
was marked with a name. The Father's name. He carried the Father's name perfectly. Jesus lived in a time of tension. There is no, you know, just read the stories. Jesus lived in a time of tension. He lived in a time of trouble. He lived in a time when things are not quite right. Definitely not in a time of perfection. Yet he reflected, he represented his father perfectly. And through Jesus, we see a loving, saving, correcting, sacrificial father, a God. And how did Jesus himself love? Well, he emulated that. He imitated that. He loved sacrificially, didn't he? You know, where Romans says, while we were still sinning, while we're still arguing about this, while we're still living in the imperfect, where we're still, you know, not being so patient, not being so kind, etc. He died for us. He saved us. He brought us salvation. Well, we were still getting it wrong. Jesus is the embodiment of these attributes. In fact, he is it. He is love completely. We could say, we could go through this list and say, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. He's not rude and he's not self-seeking or definitely not. He was seeking our good. He's not easily angered. How many times would he have been annoyed with the establishment that was true? Probably better than we could. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs. Hallelujah for me and for you. Jesus doesn't delight in evil. He rejoices in the truth of his Father. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and he always perseveres. Jesus is the embodiment. This is Jesus, this love. <laughs> and we can find the ability to do the same because of his indwelling presence in us. By his Holy Spirit living in us. We can seek in all times, difficult times, easy times, fun times, not so fun times, to do exactly the same. And we can put our name, we aim to put our name in that place. You know, put that in, you know, Andrew is patient. Andrew is kind. Andrew doesn't envy John doesn't boast. <laughs> Sue's not rude. I'm being careful picking out names here. <laughs> Roy is not easily angered because he laughs so well. Okay, Andrew keeps no record of... You know, that's actually what Paul's saying. That is what those who know God need to aspire to. to you know, if I went through that list every day, at the end of the day, there's a lot of confessing for me to do most days. You? Great call, isn't it? What a difference we could make. This is the most excellent way. I choose lots of other ways, but this one is the most excellent way. And this gives us the potential and the privilege to reflect God's love and to love the world as Jesus did. Right now, in a less than perfect moment. Right now, when we're some of us in here, some of us at Vell, some of us at home, when it's not perfect... This is what we're called to. This still enables us to reflect Jesus to the world. And this is what Paul most dearly wanted to see in this church and in every church that he had a part of. 
even when it's tough. This is the purpose for the body of believers. And Peter said, remember this one, but you, you, me, you, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what Paul wanted for every church. And the way they could do that was to love the love. And this happens in here when all of us are present or when some of us are present. It happens out there on weekdays. This is not the only day to do that. It's not just a Sunday thing. We have the whole week to be this for each other in so many different contexts. Happens in our workplaces, in our families, in our businesses, wherever we are. Days. We are it every single day of the week. And in all times, we must seek the most excellent way. Let's pray. God, we just want to thank you for your word again this morning. We want to thank you for love ever know. I want to thank you that you're patient with us, that you're kind to us, for us and with us, that, you, um, that you're not rude, that you don't seek yourself, but that you seek our good and you did that in history and you're doing that every day, that you aren't easily angered, that you don't remember all the things that we do wrong, that we can come to you freely each day. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, that you are the embodiment of that kind of love. And that you choose to live in us. One, for our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. And two, for us to bring salvation to the world. The privilege of being your witness, of bearing your name to the world around us. Lord, may we... In this situation, in the times that we struggle, may we always seek to move in that kind of love. May we trust you. May we obey your word. But may we bear your name. May we represent you, our king, to the world around us. In a way that draws people in, that shows people just how great you are. Lord, we thank you again for our community and for your word. And we pray that it will continue to have impact in our lives each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.